Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods, and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. What's up, amigos? It's Chris, Chris Lewitt, on the Prodigy Maker Show, episode 35, broadcasting live from my van at the Tennis Club of Hastings in the parking lot. It's kind of a funny story. I was going to do the show in one of the offices at the Tennis Club of Hastings here. This is near New York City, just north of New York City, where I work. I lease court time here. I'm an independent high-performance coach, so I don't work for the club, but I lease time at this nice little club called the Tennis Club of Hastings. And one of the offices was perfect. I had it all set up for the podcast and the show, and I got in there, and somebody had had been smoking in there. I don't know who it was. Actually, I do know who it was. I'm not going to name names, but somebody was smoking in the office where I was going to do the podcast. I don't like smoke, and there's no way I was going to spend an hour or so in there. So sorry for the change of plans and change of venue. Also, sorry to miss you guys on Thursday. I've been working really hard this week. We did a fabulous workshop in Vermont on footwork and movement. So that'll be coming to you live soon. We'll do the footwork. We'll do a full course online at clta.teachable.com. That's our online school. So check that out. It's going to come out soon. It was a great workshop. We had 10 or 15 players and coaches and parents up there. And I thought it went really well. The workshop was all about building world-class footwork and movement. So stay tuned for that. Today, I want to talk about how to play better at tournaments, how to prepare better, how to get your kid, whether it's your student, it's also for yourself as a player, if you're a parent or a coach, how to get your kid to win, to win more. And what the impetus for the show was, I have over the years had many students who their parents report to me that they practice really, really well, but they don't play that great in tournaments, in real matches. So I thought I would just go through some of the checkpoints, check the checklist of things that I think are important. Some of them are quite simple, but a lot of times, in my experience, players forget about them, especially parents forget about them. So I think the show will be really good for parents, good for coaches. I'm going to talk about what you can do for your kids or your players as a coach or parent, but anything that I go over on the show today you could absolutely use for yourself as a, sorry, I got some kind of alarm going off. Uh, you could absolutely use for yourself as a player. So I'll talk about it from the perspective of coaches and parents. But if you're a player, you can certainly take any of these, uh, any of these pieces of advice and you could use them in to help your own tennis game. So it's very common that players will practice 
well, they have a good week of practice, and then they'll go to the tournament, let's say on a Friday night or on a Saturday, and the performance won't be good. So why is that? Why does that happen? So I was talking to one of my students, great little kid, whom I've been coaching for a few years, and he had a really bad tournament, and he was the number one seed, and he lost first round pretty badly, and his parents were all upset. And of course, I get the texts and the emails when that happens, and the parents are like, what's the deal? Why, why isn't my son playing well? And so I have to sort of put on my detective cap and, and figure out what happened. And if there is a disconnect between practice and playing, it's almost always one of two things. It's either mental and emotional, so the player is struggling with emotions and or the mental game. We'll talk about that. Or the, there's something wrong with the simple building block preparation aspects of the tournament. So we'll get into that as well. I sort of want to talk about both. Let's talk about the simple preparatory aspects of getting ready for a tournament. It sounds obvious to some, maybe to some of you, some of these things will, will be obvious, but in my experience, a lot of kids aren't doing this. And so I, I think it's going to be helpful to go over some of the basics, maybe for parents who don't know better, maybe they were never athletes, or they just were never high-performance tennis players, or for, for coaches, a review for coaches, and it will be helpful if you're a player yourself. So you have a tournament coming up, and the number one most important thing, if you have a tournament coming up, is if it's the first round, and you're going to play in a, new, in a new club that you haven't been to before is to play on the courts to get used to the speed of the courts. That's number one. And you have to hit tennis balls, a proper tennis warm-up. So many players will just show up on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday and they don't play on the speed, on the same speed surface that the, that the tournament's on. Or they don't hit at all. They don't hit any balls before their first round. And I think it's a deadly mistake. Number one most important thing is, if, especially if it's a first round, it could be any round, but it's to have a real tennis warm-up. That means 30 minutes to an hour on the same speed surface. So it doesn't help you to warm up on the clay court and then go play a hard court tournament or to warm up on the fast court and then go play a slow court tournament. So that, that is a uh, number one really important thing. And I have this talk with a lot of parents and the parents are like, wow, we never thought of that. We thought it was enough just to go and jump rope, but it's not. So make sure your player, if you're a coach or a parent, or if you're a player yourself, you got to get on the same speed surface before especially before the first round, because that first round is incredibly dangerous in a tennis tournament. It's very easy to go, to not feel adjusted to the, to the speed, to lose your timing, and then your confidence can get undermined, starting right away in the first round. So that's number one. A lot of parents say to me, well, there's no courts at the club, okay? But don't make excuses to me. If you have no courts at the at the same venue as the tournament, be resourceful. Call up the local clubs in the area, anything within 10-20 minute radius, and book the same type of surface for your warm-up court before the match. 
You have to find a way. You can't just cover your ears, cover your eyes, and say, okay, we'll show up, and we'll see what happens, especially if your kid has confidence issues, if your kid has some anxiety issues. A lot of players have anxiety when they play, and they need to feel that rhythm. They need to feel ready, fully prepared for the match. So that's number one. Number two is there has to be another warm-up right before the, the match begins. So a lot of players will show up at the tournament, no tennis warm-up. They won't hit any balls. Big mistake. But in addition, they won't get a proper warm-up for their nervous system and body just before the match begins. So about 10 or 15 minutes out from the match, the player should hit the jump rope or should do shadow strokes in the parking lot. You know, I've done that a lot with my players when we're at tournaments. We go to the parking lot. We get the fast feet going. We get all the footwork refined and sharp. We get a sweat going. We do shadow strokes. We might do jump rope. Might do different types of physical warm-ups, running, little short sprints or agility work. And we do a nice dynamic stretch. Most players now know a good dynamic stretching routine. If you don't have one, you got to get one for your player. So at the tournament, the players got to have that routine. They get their tennis warm-up sometime earlier before the match begins. And then they have their physical warm-up at the tournament site just before the match begins. And for every player, that's different. That It's a personal thing. But usually it includes some type of warming up the body temperature, some type of footwork and agility, some type of shadow work with the racket. I like shadow shadowing with the racket. You even see Nadal doing that on tour sometimes in the gym, uh, in in right before the match begins. And I like to get the body loose and supple. So that could be the dynamic stretching. That could be uh, diff- sometimes. Uh, other types of stretches, whether it be yoga or certain static stretches, whatever stretches you that make your player comfortable and get them feeling supple and ready to play. You want a, you want a flexible warrior out there. You also want a calm warrior. We'll talk about that and mentally and emotionally, uh, about the mental side as well. But you want a, a calm, relaxed, supple warrior out there. So right before the match begins, your player should have a sweat going, body temperature should, should be up, Nervous system should be primed. No way should your player be at the tournament, hanging out, talking to buddies, chilling, and then walk on the court to start a match. And it boggles my mind, but sometimes I go with my players to their tournament and I can't believe what their rituals are pre-match. And it sets them up for failure. It sets them up for a low performance for underachieving. It also sets them up for big anxiety. And one of the main goals in preparation for a match or a tournament is to reduce your player's anxiety, to reduce your own anxiety if you have a match coming up. So you, you've you got that preparation for the tournament. Let's back up a little bit the night before or the week before. How about sleep? Simple things. How about hydration? How about nutrition? I can't believe how many kids get this stuff wrong. And could partly be the parents' fault, could partly be the coach's fault, not teaching the kids this stuff. 
Uh, the players themselves can take responsibility for understanding how to prepare better. But if I had a dollar for every kid who didn't eat at the right time, I'd be a millionaire. If I had a dollar for every kid who didn't hydrate right, if I had a dollar for every kid who just walked on a match cold, you know, it happens all the time. And then inevitably the performance in the match is going to be less than during the practice. So, night before, good night's sleep or up late studying? You as the parent, you have to enforce early bedtime. Probably the week leading up to an important tournament is, is even more critical. Not to, do, do, not to be doing late night after late night. Here in New York City, we have a huge problem with the kids having too much homework. They're getting jammed late at night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, staying up late past midnight, getting five hours of sleep, and then they show up on Friday and their nervous systems are burned. And parents can't understand why they're not performing well, why they're not playing their best. The players don't understand it either. Coaches are frustrated. Parents are frustrated. Players underachieving. So the nervous system has to be ready for battle, for war. And you need to get enough sleep for that. For most people, that's at least seven hours, eight hours, sometimes more for young children. If you're not getting that preparation, you can't expect the best performance for your kid at the match. Another thing, nutrition, carbs, basic nutrition. Carbohydrates are the basic fuel for a tennis player. You've got to have a good store of glucose, glycogen, in the muscles to play well. Also, for your brain, your brain runs on glucose. you got to make sure your player has a high-quality carbohydrate meal or snack pre-tournament. Sounds obvious, but a lot of times kids don't have that. In addition, your player's got to have snack, uh, a high-carbohydrate snack, a sugar snack. Could be a power bar, could be a cliff bar, could be a vitamin water. They have to have a, a nice hydration drink too, vitamin water, Gatorade. You could have a mix. A lot of players use a mix now, an electrolyte mix. It's really smart to have a water bottle and an electrolyte mix that your player gets in the habit of sipping at the changeovers. The changeover routine is really important. But getting down to all these building blocks of why players suck at tournaments. They, they just start stinking up the whole place and they don't understand it. Mom and dad don't understand it. And then the coach has a difficult situation to face because the coach usually says, I don't get it. We had a great week of practice, but apparently the kid didn't play well in the match. So there's this disconnect. Very common. Happens to me a lot. That's why I try to go to tournaments on Fridays and Saturdays and find out what the hell's going on. This is really important stuff. This is just building blocks, building block fundamental preparatory work before the tournament. What else? Parents, I'm going to talk to you now a little bit. Your main job when you take your kid to a tournament, I take my kids to lots of events now. My son is a competitive runner. My daughter's a competitive wrestler. I've taken lots of players to tournaments, you know, as a coach. Parent or coach, you take your kid to, number one thing, you take your kid to a tournament. Your job 
is to support them emotionally, boost their confidence, and reduce their anxiety. Number one job. It's not to fix their technique at the tournament. It's not to give them too many things to think about tactically. Don't confuse them. Keep your advice very simple, very positive, and build, support, buttress, buoy, boost your player's confidence. Please, God, especially in the car ride to the tournament, that car ride, if you're a parent or a coach, that car ride can make or break the tournament. A lot of parents don't realize this. Sometimes the coaches don't realize this. Usually coaches have a little more training in sports psychology. But sometimes parents are not empathetic and they don't put themselves in their players' shoes. Very, very important as a parent to have empathy and to understand that your player is already feeling a lot of pressure and stress because they're, they entered a tournament and they're going to a tournament. And your job is to try to calm them, to create a calm, relaxed warrior who's going to go out there and fight but not to be overly stressed and not to be overly anxious. So as a parent or a coach or whoever's driving that car, please be careful with the words that you use. As Dr. Jim Lair says, words are super powerful. Words matter. The way you talk to your kid before the match is going to get in their head and prepare them for high performance or prepare them to fail. So if you want to give coaching advice, if you're a coach parent, and I work with many parents who coach, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But coach well. Say less, as Tony Nadal says, keep it very simple. Don't overcomplicate the strategy. A few simple pieces of advice for your player is enough. They have many things to worry about. Be careful with your body language, parent or coach, whoever's watching the match. Be very careful with your body language. If you frown, if you cross your arms, if you make faces, if you have a negative look in your eyes, negative body language, trust me, your player will pick up on that. Kids are very intuitive. Kids are very insightful. They feel a lot. When your player is preparing for the match, be careful what you say to them. Try to be mostly positive. Be enthusiastic. Give a lot of support. Tell your kid you can do it. It's one of my favorite sayings. Simple saying. You can do this. You can do it. Have that type of attitude as a parent. Be constructive. Be supportive. Try to have empathy and feel what your player is feeling. Many times before a match, kids are going through big waves of emotions, tidal waves of feelings and emotions. And try to support them. Try to understand what they're going through. Don't add to the pressure. There's already enough pressure. Don't add to it as a parent or coach. Be very careful with your words. Many times I feel that a player is prepared for the tournament, They've had a very good week of practice, and that's another thing. Sounds obvious, but I've had players who take the week off, sign up for a tournament on Friday. How's that going to work out? Or you come back from vacation, sign up for a tournament the next Friday. So 
you didn't get a good lead-up practice before the tournament. That's another simple, basic building block. Have a good week or two of training before you enter a tournament. Otherwise, your kid's going to have low confidence. Probably not going to play well. But I've had many kids who are positioned to play well. They've had a good uh, lead-up practice before a tournament. And God knows what mom or dad says to them in the car. And now the kid's got these negative thoughts circling in their head. They've added more and more pressure to themselves. Bam! Bad performance. Bad first set. First set goes bad. What does mom or dad do on the sidelines? Arms crossed. Walking back and forth, shaking their head on the sideline. That kind of garbage from parents or coaches, either one or whoever, nanny, babysitter, Whoever's there watching the match, be very, very careful how you behave because kids, they pick up on that. They got eyes. They can see. They can hear. You think that they're only watching their opponent? They're not. They're watching everything around them, especially you. So the best coaches in the world, watch them while, watch them watching matches. Watch how engaged they are. Watch their body language, how positive they are in general. Watch how supportive they are, how they clap, how they cheer. And parents and whoever's the caretaker at the tournament, whoever's the observer, whoever's on the team at the tournament, be very, very careful with how you present yourself, your body language, and of course, your words. Of course. Because all of these things can sabotage a match. They can bring your player down and they can, they can sp- spiral up Big emotions, anger, frustration, embarrassment, stress, anxiety. They can raise up the pressure, ramp up the pressure. And so in the end, your kid doesn't play the way you want them to. Really important stuff. And it leads me into, okay, let's say the tournament starts, right? What about the changeover routine? Very important to have a plan for the changeover. I go to a lot of tournaments and the kids are clueless on the court. They don't have the most basic building blocks of sports psychology, which are rituals, good breath control, especially breath control to reduce anxiety, to stay calm, good body language, good facial language, facial expressions. It's unbelievable to me how even some of my own players, who I assume had all these things baked in, like I just assumed it's in the DNA, or we've talked about it enough, and they're going to do it at a tournament. I just came back from a tournament last night. Kind of an interesting match. We can talk about that a little bit, maybe. But, you know, but it's amazing to me how the basic building blocks of sports psychology are often not there for a player. And I'm not talking about high-level PhD stuff. I'm talking about what I said, body language, rituals, both. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the pre-match ritual. Talk, I can touch on that as well. Talking about the, during the match ritual, during the especially changeover, because changeover is a big lull in time, minute, minute and a half. Players got to have a good changeover plan.
positive self-talk. The private voice, as Dr. Jim Lair says. How's the private voice? How's the self-talk? How's the inner game? A lot of kids are failing. They, they have a lot of negativity, a lot of self-criticism. They haven't worked to clear their mind and stay more positive. A lot of kids have trouble focusing at tournaments. They get distracted. Their eyes are wandering rather than finding a centered point, on the, usually on the racket strings, for example. Basic things. I come to a match. I see a kid, bad body language, negative face. Tony Nadal says, don't come to the tennis court with a bad face. I love that kind of talk. Don't come to the tennis court if you have a bad face. Don't play a match with a bad face, a whiny face, an excuse-making face. These are basics. Don't play a match like that. Don't play a match where you're overly angry. You're, you're having trouble controlling your emotions. All of these basic building blocks of sports psychology, the, the failures in these aspects are the reason why players don't perform like they do in practice. When the coach is there to monitor and to help. On the tennis court, they're usually alone. The children are by themselves. And they're left to their own devices. And this is where the sports psychology, the mental and emotional game, can fall apart. Guys, thanks for all the waves. I see some new friends tuning in because the show's at a different time this week, Saturday afternoon. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you for the waves. Guys, if you can get the preparation right, if you can get the mental and emotional game right, just the basics, okay? We're not even talking advanced stuff. Your player should have an equivalent performance at the tournament as they do in practice. If there's a disconnect and you see a big change, variability in the way your player performs vis-a-vis practice and match, it's almost always either something wrong in the preparation, like I said, something wrong in the mental and emotional department. You can pinpoint those two areas. When I have a player report back to me, a parent report back to me that the tournament was not good, and I know we had a good week of practice, and I know the player was doing well, hitting well, hitting a good ball, I know it's one of those two things. Usually, and I don't usually blame parents. I'm very pro-parent. All you who are have watched the show and are big fans of the show, you know that I'm big supporter of parents. I work with many parents who are even coaching their own kids. But this is one that's usually the parent has done something wrong, either getting the kid to the tournament, something happened on route to the tournament in the car ride, something happened pre, pre-match. It's the caretaker, the parent, or if a coach took the player, it's the coach. In my case, it's always, I'm usually, if I'm going to the tournament, I'm going to make sure all the ducks are in a row. But a lot of times I can't be everywhere. So I have a mom or dad usually taking my players. And so I have to say to, I have to try to talk to them the way I'm talking to you on the show now and lay out to them, okay, where did things go awry? What did we do wrong in order to get this player prepared mentally and physically for the match? So there's a lot to talk about here. I don't want to go overtime. I want to try to keep this show around an hour. 
if possible, because I have to get back on the court and teach, and I may run out of battery life. You never know with, with my equipment here. All right, even got some questions on the board. See, my buddy Robert Garrett is watching. What's up, Robert? Payers and Players Podcast. What's up, buddy? Paul Jessup's on the show. He says, first question of the day. The disconnect I see is usually the mental side, whereby they play safe and don't play the shots they are capable of, or the other extreme, whereby they play too loose. It's all about getting the right anxiety level for me. Yes, absolutely. The disconnect is mental. You're absolutely right. You have to sort of delve a little deeper and figure out why Why are they playing safe? Why are they playing loose? What is it exactly? And this gets a little deeper into the psychology, which I like to work on with my players. But you have to know what's triggering the anxiety. Is it anxiety? Is it embarrassment? Is it fear? Is it an anger management problem? There's all sorts of emotions that are coursing through a player at a tournament. And I don't think sometimes the parents are are really in tune with that. Or whoever's, even some coaches watching, they don't realize all of the the ebb and flow of emotions. The pressure is so great. The emotions can be very high. But the player could be feeling a number of things. Sometimes having just the parents there If the parent makes a certain face or a certain gesture, that can trigger anxiety. That can trigger different emotions in the player. Embarrassment, fear, anger, frustration, all those things. Again, the goal when you bring your child to a tournament is to keep them calm, tranquilo. Is to keep them calm, to make them a relaxed, calm warrior. Anything you do that triggers stress, pressure, bottles up or builds up negative emotions it is going to contribute to a poor performance and you got to know that as a parent if you're bringing your kid if you're a coach you got to understand that you have to understand those dynamics what else we talked about the changeover routine how about pre-match having a, a simple game plan you could write it down on on a note card You ever have your players write down a few simple tactics that they need to, a note card that they can check, like a match card that they can check. Very easy routine to follow. Very simple ritual. How about visualization? I always used that when I was a player, before the match. I would go to the bathroom or a quiet place to my car and visualize how I want to play. Visualize my game plan. Visualize my simple tactical patterns that I'm going to use. And really see myself playing good tennis, playing the tennis that I want to play, becoming my best self on the tennis court. And I notice that some players who don't perform well, that's not a habit that they have. Another simple idea that you can do pre-match, you have your tennis warm-up, regular calisthenic warm-up, and the visual mental warm-up, you know, simple, very easy to do, find a quiet place, maybe if you're jacked up with your anxiety, you, you meditate a little bit, you do some, some breathing exercises, you calm yourself, whatever it is, could be music, the best players have a very good ritual, they have good positive habits that prepare them to play the match and win, the kids who are winning tournaments, whether they were trained to do these things or it's just on instinct, they just sort of 
have these natural, naturally good habits, they're doing these things and winning consistently. The players who practice really well and then have very spotty results at the tournaments, you're going to see holes in all the things that I'm saying. There's, it's going to be very spotty somewhere in the preparation and in their mental game, whether it's mental, physical preparation or in their actual mental game when they're competing. You're going to find holes in a lot of the areas that I'm mentioning on the show today. What else? I'd like to mention, there's a lot of stuff here, but they're all simple things. And I'm always surprised when a player is missing a bunch of these things. Because for me, I guess, you know, I played at a pretty high level. Certainly when I was a kid, I didn't have all these. But as I got older, I learned to really take care of business, to dot my I's, cross my T's, and make sure that I was fully prepared for every match. I guess it shouldn't be that surprising that young children aren't doing that. You know, they're kids. But sometimes I expect it when I have a, a parent, a successful parent, who, who brings the kids pr- primarily to tournaments, I sort of expect them to, to ensure that these things are happening, and oftentimes it's, they're, they're not happening. I would like to put in a mention for post-match, post-match ritual, post-match recovery. Are you getting your kid off the court? And stretching with them, static stretching, helping to prevent injury, prevent stiffness, so that they can play better for the next match. Champions do those kind of things. Winners do those kind of things. They, they immediately, the match is over, report your score, go stretch. What else should you do immediately post-match? Hydration, electrolyte mix. A lot of science says to get a carbohydrate and at least 20 grams of protein, get the protein carbohydrate drink into the system within the first hour to speed up recovery. Are you guys doing that? Does there, is there a time delay before the, a snack or meal? Make sure the meals that you eat are not too heavy, not too high in fat and protein. Make sure that nutritionally your kid has a good recovery so that they can be ready within an hour or sometimes uh, a few hours the next match or to start preparing for the the match that's going to come the next morning. I see a ton of players who have an amazing first round or second round. They don't do a good job post-match in the evening, let's say, in the recovery phase. And then the next morning they play really shitty. And the parents are mystified. They're like, I don't get it. Friday night, Johnny played amazing. Saturday morning, dud. Whose fault is that? Could be the parents' fault. Could be the kids' fault. These are little kids. Uh, It's going to come down to the parents. The parents are the one taking them home. The coach is not going to be at home with them. The coach is not going to be the one getting them to bed early. This is the parents' job. The parents have to do this job well. Getting them a good, nutritious meal. Hydration electrolytes, early bedtime, getting a good solid sleep, right? And then you got to get up again and do the whole routine in the morning. Tennis warm-up, calisthenics, mental visualization warm-up, you know, calming, to be, to be ready for that first match. That could be at 8 a.m. Could be 9 a.m. the next morning. How many kids are mismanaged Primarily by their parents, sometimes by coaches too. 
tournament. Great first round. Go to bed, wake up, and you just show up at 7.45 before an 8 a.m. match. That's a recipe for underperformance. That's a recipe for jacking up your kid's anxiety. If you have a little warrior and they can go on the court and figure it out and fight and overcome bad management, bad preparation, you know, that's great. But most kids can't do that. Most kids have feelings. They're, they're, they're sensitive. They have Stre- they're, they're sensitive to stress, they have anxiety, and if you don't give them a good preparation, they're going to fail. Then you wonder what happened, you know. So, what else? Funny story. I have a kid right now who I'm coaching, very good player, one of the top players in the East. And I asked him the other day, I won't name his name, I'll say, what do you do for snack, you know, during your matches, you know, what's your routine, what's your system for, for keeping your energy level high, because he's been having a little trouble with his energy management, and he's like, well, there's just two players, there's two kids, actually, there's, I had this conversation with two players, one of them very top ranked, and one of them just starting out, so the really, t- the highly ranked kid says to me, well, I just bring a, you know, a little water, and I said, what do you mean? Like, what, what do you keep in your bag, you know, for fuel, for refueling at changeovers and stuff? He's like, no, that's it. I don't, I don't do anything. I don't eat anything. I don't drink anything. I have a little water. I just, you know, I said to myself, this is crazy. You know, this is loco. This is a good player, like very good player. He's on the cusp of making nationals, you know. And he, he, he's looking at me with a straight face saying that he hasn't even have any kind of refueling plan during a match. So this is a kid, I don't care if he watches the show, I'll tell him to watch it. This is a kid who's been struggling with up and downs in the match, and he's been struggling with concentration. So if you don't feel yourself at regular checkpoints during a match, what's going to happen to your concentration? You don't get the glucose to your brain, and you're Ability to concentrate starts to drop. Just it's basic nutrition and you know neurochemistry, and a lot of kids fail to understand that. Sometimes parents don't understand that. You know the player should have their electrolyte drink, water drink, snack. Usually, I like to have a a sugary bar like a Cliff Bar, some kind of maybe nutrition bar, something with a quick glucose, and. Uh, some maybe some fruit like bananas are very popular with tennis players you know something that won't upset the stomach and you sort of have it all in a row and at every changeover you you sort of sit down you start to think about your tactics your strategy a little bit maybe check your match card your your note card about you know refresh your mind about what you're supposed to be doing strategically take some deep breaths control your breathing and tell yourself something positive and off to the races next game but so many kids are not even doing those, that, that basic, simple routine. It's, it's not difficult to master that, but they, they don't do it. And they don't play that well. Paul Jessup says, A big issue on the mental side, I find, is players playing the player instead of playing the ball. On many occasions, my player is as good or better than the player they are playing, but they don't believe they can beat them. What advice do you have in this area? Okay, so you're saying the player doesn't believe in themselves? 
the player is uh, in, intimidated by the player? I don't know, it's a confusing question, Paul, because a lot of times if a player doesn't believe that they can win, I mean, that that's probably your job as a coach, maybe job with a parent to give them a lot of confidence building. And typically, I want my players to analyze the other player. So when you say they're not playing the player, they have to play the player because they have to figure that guy out. So a lot of times you have kids who strike the ball well, but they're weak tactically. So this is another area. You lead me to a good point. That this is another reason why some players who are good players, good practice players, they don't win in matches because they don't apply their skills very well tactically. And that, I think that's uh, kind of what you're getting at. When you see a player who goes to a tournament and they, you say they're better, like Paul, you say the player's better. What does that mean? They have better strokes. They have better skills. Because that's not what wins the tournament. That's not what wins a match. What wins a match is the mental and emotional control. The technique is important, of course. But typically, assuming two players are close in level, technically, it's going to be the mental and emotional control and the tactical game plan. And for that, you have to play the player. You have to understand your opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So there has to be some consideration of who is on the other side of the net. You don't just play the ball. Because if you just play uh, the ball coming in, I feel like it's a little short-sighted. I think I know what you're saying is not to get maybe wrapped up in the other player's deal, not to get, not to let the other player's gamesmanship affect your player. In that sense, just play the ball. But what I'm talking about is you got to play the player too. You have to understand what are those players' strengths and weaknesses. Many times you have a kid who's very good in practice. They hit the ball well, they drill well, and then they get to a match and they don't play well because they don't understand their own patterns. They don't understand their their own strengths and weaknesses and how to disturb their opponent. They don't probe their opponent. They don't play in a differentiated way, trying to find weaknesses in their opponent. For example, I have students who hit, go to a, you see, a, you, you go to their match and you see they hit only one way, maybe hard and flat, you know. And what I want them to do is try a loopy spin ball, try to play angle, maybe a short ball, bring the opponent to net, and they never explore uh, those tactical areas, and they never find the weakness of their opponent. So that's a very common reason, another reason why players don't do well at a tournament. Maybe I should have mentioned that at the onset of the show, but you make me, you make me realize, Paul, that make me remember that the tactical is cannot be underestimated. You have, for example, some kids they drill too much during the week. Lots of drills, lots of baseline points. You know, maybe they don't serve or return that much. Maybe they're doing a lot of hitting out of a basket or a ball machine. And then they get to the tournament and they can't understand why why they don't play well. So these are not my players because I make sure my players are ready in that context. But I know that in other clubs with other coaches, sometimes the parents are mystified. The parents are confused as to why their kid's not playing well because they look so good in the lesson. They look so good in the practice. This is a common phenomenon. I think a lot of people realize that. So if you're doing too much dead ball, uh, 
too much basket work, too much drills, too much baseline points, and not enough real playing, the performance can go down at the tournament. Let me get to your follow-up question, okay, buddy? So Paul says, the player, as in the reputation of the player, is high, and they don't believe they can beat them. The question is more that they respect their opponent too much. Okay, so in those situations where your opponent is intimidated by the player's reputation, I mean, that is probably the coach or the parent's job to give a good pep talk, to give a good support to the player pre-match and make sure that they believe that they can win. And I usually tell my players, look, if you don't believe you can win this match, let's not go out on the court. There's no match that you really should go out to play that on some level you you ha- you don't believe you sh- you can win. You shouldn't go play a match if you have a doubt like that. So let's you may need to be a little tough with the player. You may have to have a little tough chat there. You know, before a match, I never said you can't be tough with a kid, but it has to be mostly positive. If the message is you're you're a serious player, you can do this. You can beat this higher ranked guy, this seated guy or whoever it is, then it can be delivered sometimes. It may need to be delivered sometimes in a very tough way. So I think that's the pep talk. That's the, the pre-match preparation part of getting your player ready. Paul says, The player, as in the reputation of the player, is high, and they don't believe they can beat them, but frustratingly, they probably could if they believed in themselves more. If it becomes a chronic problem and the player is chronically not believing in themselves, you may have to look outside of the tennis court. There may be something off the court. It could be a dynamic with the parents. It could be a self-esteem issue off the court. It could be something in the academic realm, in their personal lives. When a player has struggles, when a player has trials and tribulations off the court, it can manifest in a lack of confidence on the court. So if you're not able to boost the player up with your pep talk, with your motivational speech, with your inspiring words, there may be something else going on. And if it's a chronic issue, a lot of times you have to sort of address the underlying mental and emotional problem that's there. It could be something in the family. It could be something in the kid's personal life, in school you have to find out what is going on that's that's under the current, under the surface, that's causing them not to believe in themselves. And you have to address that. You may need the help of a sports psychologist or, or a, a, regularly, a regular psychologist to help explore those issues if you're not qualified to do that as a tennis coach. Because normally, if the preparation is good and you give a good, inspiring talk to your player, they should believe they should go out on the court and believe in themselves. And if they don't, something is wrong. Something is wrong and they really shouldn't compete if they don't believe they can win pretty much every match. I understand that some matches are tall order. You might be playing someone substantially higher up. But on some level, you have to believe that you can find a way. It's, it's very important to be an optimist and to have that self-belief. So... I hope that helps, Paul, something like that. Sometimes there's something serious outside of the tennis court that you need to try to ad- help address as a tennis coach. All right, so, guys, 
post-match, I mentioned the recovery, how important it is. How about recovery in terms of mental and emotional recovery? Do you as a parent or coach, do you hit those kids hard right as they're walking off the court? You got your list, your laundry list of things that they did wrong. You hit them hard right after, that's usually not a good idea. All the sports psychologists talk about that. All the coaches who are trained in, and experienced in, in mental, in the mindset and mental aspect, they, they usually say, don't, don't do that. Let the kid recover emotionally. Let the, the, the feelings, the big feelings, let those feelings calm down a little after the match. And try to be mostly supportive and listen. Listen more after the match. Don't, don't talk. Don't hit the kids over the head with your genius analysis, you know, if they're not ready. Sometimes a kid is, can listen to it. You know, they're in a good place and you can have that talk. It's usually the dreaded car ride home or the dreaded walk home or trip home, whatever the a- airplane ride, whatever it is. Please, God, be very careful on that, that post-match trip and don't mess up your kid for the next match, the next morning or whatever it is. Be very judicious with your words. Be very careful and conscientious. Listen more than talk. And then when the timing's right, when your kid's feeling a little better, maybe you get them a nice meal, their favorite meal, and you say to them, look, these are some of the things that that I saw that we can work on, we can improve for the next round. Let's do that. Let, let's implement these things for the next match. Or if it's, if it's after a loss, let's implement these things in the next practice and improve them for the next tournament. And that way, you get a much better buy-in from the player and you won't shut them down or make them feel really crappy so that their confidence is blown for the next time. Very important post-match. What else? I know we have a few uh, email grab bags to go to. I uh, had a few email questions this week. I'll get to those in a moment. What else causes really bad performance? We covered a lot. Players don't, don't win. The players who are not winning, there's something lurking there. you got to f- try to figure it out. Could be the mental. Could be the preparation. Could be, you know, so, something is missing. You go back to the, the match itself, you know. Is the player, does the player have a good, a good game plan, the tactical? Does the player controlling their emotions? Does the player have good basic rituals? Is the player staying calm and using their breath work to, to help them, to help control their, their levels of anxiety? Does the player have good energy management? That's a big one that I work on a lot with kids. I work on their energy management. When they're feeling low, do they boost themselves up? Do they pump themselves well? When they're feeling too high, do they calm themselves? Do they bring their, their level of arousal, as sports psychologists call it, their level of excitement and stress, do they bring that, are they able to bring that down, to manipulate that? Work on that a lot with players. Talked about tactical game plan. Rituals, basic rituals. Do they have a good ritual before the serve? Do they have a good ritual when they're going to pick up balls? Do they have a good ritual when they're going to return serve? 
in my experience, the best players, they have all these things in spades. All of these rituals are polished. All of the areas that I've talked about, numerous areas on the show so far, the players who are winning, it's not a mystery. They have these things locked in. They have either learned these things intuitively, naturally, by instinct, or they've had a good coach or a good parent help them learn these things, help them organize all these things. It's not a coincidence. And I hear a lot, another thing, if I had a dollar for every time parent emailed me or came to me after a tournament and said, my son, my daughter was a better player. My kid was a better player, but lost. I would be a very rich tennis coach, and I'm not that rich tennis coach. I should have probably gone to work on Wall Street with all my friends from Cornell, from Columbia. You know... If I, I would be a very rich man, richer than I am now, although I'm happy, I'm happy as a tennis coach. Not rich, but happy. Because it's just not true. If your player was better, they would win. So what's contributing to that? Usually, the parent or whoever's watching is judging the technique, the skills of the player. But as I mentioned, skills don't always win a match, you know? So, pretty technique doesn't win. The prettiest player oftentimes loses in the early rounds of a tournament. And, Paul, you mentioned your player being intimidated by another player's look or ranking or or reputation. You should never be intimidated by someone's strokes. You should tell your students, parents, tell your kids, strokes don't win a match. Heart wins a match. Mental toughness wins a match. Your grit and determination wins a match. Your focus wins a match. Your never-say-die fighting spirit wins matches. Your tactics, your game plan, your strategy, your smarts, that wins matches. And so if you're up against some amazing kid with smooth, pretty strokes, tell your kids that because they need to know not to be intimidated by strokes. Skills don't usually win a match. They help. It's nice to have good technique. Playing the big points well, handling pressure, that wins a match. How many pretty strokes break down in important moments? The prettiest players often... Don't look as pretty when pressure comes. And that's what you want to tell your students or tell your son or daughter. Make sure that they're not intimidated by someone's pretty game. And make sure that you don't judge a player based on their strokes, your own player included. Because pretty strokes don't guarantee success. And just because your player is better with the technique doesn't mean they're better in all the other categories that I just listed. Because that's what wins matches. Another thing. Anticipation. Smarts. Knowing where the ball is going to go. Tactical anticipation. Technical anticipation. Psychological anticipation. Understanding your, your opponent's tendencies. Those are things that are sometimes even more important than 
skills or techniques. So oftentimes you have a parent who says, oh, my players, much better player, but lost. And then, you know, you get into the conversation and you're like, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, much better. my son has much better strokes. I mean, it's not even close. This kid was really scrappy. How often do you hear that? Or you hear it from kids all the time too. Kids will say it too. I'm a much better player than that kid. And I'll say, oh yeah, what was the score? Oh, it was like two and two. I lost, uh, it, it was one and two, but I'm, I'm a better player than that kid. He's a pusher. <laughs> How often do you hear that? I'm a better pl- coach. I'm a much better player. I lost two and two. That kid's just a pusher. He's not going anywhere. I, I've got a better game. Okay. I mean, there may be a little truth to that, but oftentimes I like to flip it around and say, okay, what is that pusher doing well to allow him to beat you 6-2, 6-2, even though he's got shitty technique. How is it possible? And I guarantee you it's because that pusher is can learn a lot from that pusher. That pusher is consistent. That pusher's in probably better shape. That pusher's got all of the mental toughness assets that I mentioned before. Probably a really tough fighter, a real bulldog, right? And that pusher probably anticipates very well. That pusher is probably getting the racket on all kinds of balls. Even if they're not the most fast kid, they're able to know where the ball is going to go. They have very good skills, not technique skills, not technical skills, but they have other skills that are very, very good. And the parents don't often rate those skills or put value on those skills. They just look at the superficial skill set, like the technique, how the players look, you know, and, you know, there's an old saying, probably know in tennis, winning ugly, Brad Gilbert's famous book, you know, players who win ugly, they have those assets that I mentioned, and sometimes they're below the surface, they're not something you can see right away, but they're powerful weapons and powerful skills that players have. And typically the players who are just looking superficially at stroke technique, they don't understand how they could lose to a kid like that because they're not aware or maybe they're not very good at the others, maybe uh, less obvious skills that are so important that I mentioned before. So that's very common. Parents say to me all the time, my kid's better. What was the score? It was one and one, but you know, here come the excuses. And the list of excuses ensues. Or from the player. Yeah, I, I'm a much better player. I have a much bigger game. I, mean, I lost pretty. I lost one and two. But I have a much bigger game. I have much better, much better game than that kid. Oh, yeah? So how is it possible then that you lost? Oh, well. And then the laundry list of excuses starts to, you know. And then you got to go through them point by point and, and say, all right. And... The way that I like to flip it around for those kids when they start listening to the excuses is I say, I try to point out what the pusher or the, the other kid who's not as good, what they were able to do well, I put those as maybe goals for my player who thinks they're better. Those, like imagine, because if you have better technique and you have all those other skills too, you won't lose to someone like that. You know, you'll be able to defeat... Uh, most anyone who is close to you in level. Okay, 
I have a few questions here, and then I'd like to get to the grab bag, and then I don't want to miss my lesson here, so I've got to finish up the day on court here. I've been working all day since the morning, and I'm lucky I got a cancellation, so we were able to do the show. I didn't think we were going to get to the show today, but I'm glad you guys were able to join me. Got a nice show and got some good questions. Charles Sai, my buddy from Texas. Texas, don't mess with Texas. Guys, I'm getting a lot of players from Texas. Keep them coming. Got a number of Texas players coming to the summer camp, by the way. Some really good ones. Couple Zonals players. Couple kids getting, uh, you know, kids getting ready for nationals. And then we've got a, a host of other players. I love the state of Texas. I used to live in Texas, so love Texas. Got to wear my cowboy hat and have my big truck and Friday night football and all that. Love Texas. Okay, Charles says, any advice on reducing unforced errors at tournaments? Charles, it's a very general question. You have to know what is causing the errors. Is it any one of the long laundry lists of things that I mentioned that could affect performance? It could be. Could be the mental. Could be emotional. Could be tactical. Like the shot selection, the choices that your daughter's making. It could be technical. Could be footwork and movement. So when a player is going to a tournament and making a lot of unforced errors, you have to do your detective work and figure out what is causing the errors. It could look technical, but it could be because your daughter or son is getting very tight, feeling pressure, feeling too much stress. The stress level is riding too high in their bodies, and it's causing tension, physiological, you know, physical tension, and that's affecting the technique. That could be affecting their movement and positioning. You got to know what's causing what. Is it a mental, emotional issue? Are they getting angry, losing their temper, and then playing poorly? Is it a tech, uh, technical issue? Is it purely a technical issue? I have some players, they're making a lot of errors at tournaments. Great question, Charles. They're making a lot of errors at tournaments, and their parents want to get them a sports psychologist. But when I see their games, I see clear flaws in their technical stroke production that are causing the mistakes and are likely exacerbated by tension. But still, you can't blame a kid for being weak mentally if they have a serious catastrophic technical flaw in their stroke or they haven't been trained to move well. Or for that matter... Could it be something physical, like their fitness level? A lot of kids have unforced error problems because they get tired. They may not even realize how tired they're getting. You could see a drop in performance of just 5%. If the physical, let me rephrase it. If, if, if physically their, their fatigue is dropping by, by just a little bit, that can have a profound effect on their consistency, their shot production. So fitness often plays a role. Fitness can often cause mental problems. If a kid is not fit, they oftentimes don't have great confidence. If a kid is not fit, they have trouble focusing and putting together good tactics on the court. So all of these areas are interwoven, and it's our job as coaches and parents to figure out what is wrong. And I guess one of the takeaways from the show is most parents and coaches get it wrong. They're barking up the wrong tree. Or they're, they're seeing, they don't see the complete forest. They just see one or two trees. 
And you have to sort of understand all of what's affecting the performance in it, all of the aspects that we've discussed on the show. And there may be a few that I've, I've forgotten. You know, this is, these are off the top of my head live, you know, this is extemporaneous. This is not, this is not even from an essay that I've written or anything like that. These are just, you know, things that are, I'm seeing in every, my everyday coaching world. And when I go to tournaments, things that I'm seeing on a regular basis. So you have to take into account all of those factors and suss out what is what is really going on here. Tactical. Some kids make a lot of poor shot selections. They go for too much. They don't have good zones. They don't play smart patterns. They don't understand the geometry of the court and when to go to this direction, when to go that direction, when to attack, when to defend. There are many, many reasons for unforced errors, but you have to find out, is it technical? Is it tactical? Is it mental and emotional? Is it physical? Is it a combination of all of those? And that's part of my job as a junior development coach is many times getting a young kid to learn how to be consistent at a tournament. It's, it's finding the, the solution and finding the answer to all of those questions, coming up with a, the best possible solution is I think in many ways what makes a great junior development coach is teaching a kid all of those things, finding out what is wrong, coming up with solutions and getting a kid solid. Because if you can get a kid solid who's young and that they can learn all of those aspects and put them together into a, a match and be relatively consistent, they're going to get a good ranking. They're going to move up pretty high and usually break through to the national level. And then on top of that platform, you start to build big weapons. That's my basic philosophy as a junior development coach. So you've kind of hit on something important there, Charles, is reducing unforced errors at tournaments. Everything the whole show is based on here. You could do everything right, and then on the car ride to the tournament, let's say you did everything right on the show, except on the car ride to the tournament, you shove a ton of ideas in your kid's head, Maybe you, your body language is not good. Maybe you're worried yourself and it just rubs off on your player and you can't for the life of you understand why your player's not playing well when you've done everything right, all your ducks in a row, but you've sabotaged them on the car ride. I'm not saying you did that, Charles, but I'm just saying this is like real. This happens, this happens to players. So you've got to figure out what is going on, what's causing the inconsistency, and then... Go after that with a plan. Build a game plan. Okay, last question from Paul Jessup. He says, the week ahead of a big tournament, do you get your players to play a much higher percentage of matches in practice? I'm nodding my head already. To get them tuned in or stick with the typical week training program? Absolutely. You Biggest mistake on the coaching side is probably doing too much baseline points, too much drills, too much dead ball work pre-tournament week. During the tournament week, the you know, you can maybe do that on Monday or Tuesday, but clearly Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday leading up to a Friday or Saturday should be a lot of real match play, real point play, tiebreakers, set play, things that the kids are going to see in the tournament. You know, if you're playing two-on-two baseline points all week and then you're not serving that much, for example, and then you go to the tournament and your kid has a bad day first round, they're double faulting, their first serve percentage is low. I mean, whose fault is that? 
the kid just hasn't been prepared right for the demands of the tournament. It's important to do a lot of serve and return points leading into a tournament. It's important to do a lot of singles leading into singles. If you have a whole week and a lot of the practice is doubles, that's why I don't like four players per court. I like two players per court or maybe three max, the Spanish way. If the kids are doing a lot of doubles and two-on-two work, and then they go to a tournament and it's one-on-one, well, that kid hasn't been prepared very well. So this is also part of the formula. The coach has to do a good job leading into the tournament. All right, I'm going to get quickly to the email grab bag, the mailbox, the Q&A. So my buddy from Poland, I think, Tomas, had an important technical footwork question, another one. Tomas is a big fan of the show. Thank you, my amigo from Poland. He says, when on the court should you take small steps and when should you take big steps on what type of balls, what type of, sh- uh, what type of situations? The answer is, when the ball is farther away, you want to take big explosive steps to it. When you have a short ball and you're looking to attack, you should take big explosive sprint steps to that ball. And when you're being pressured on the return, uh, sorry, on like a defensive situation where you're moving backwards, that those first steps should be explosive, big steps. And you should use your small steps only when there's time and only when there's when you need to fine-tune. Interestingly, the pace of the game has become so fast, you don't see as much emphasis on small steps anymore. I still think it's important. It's part of my footwork method. We did it in this Monday workshop. If you look at my online courses for footwork, we've got some good courses courses at our clta.teachable.com school, our online school. I'll plug that for you guys because I think those courses are so good. We have uh, the hashtag flow footwork course, which I think is very, very comprehensive and powerful. I have a lot of parents and coaches using that course. And you will see in that course, we have part of the training regimen is small step work, adjustment work. So I think it's important for the kid to be trained to do that. But at the same time, the small steps are not as as much of the game as they used to be. If you think back to the 70s with Connors, the way he adjusted all the time with chirpy steps, you know, little steps, adjustment steps. It's just nobody plays like that anymore. The speed of the game is too fast. The only time you use adjustment steps are when you have extra time, floating ball, bad bounce, you know, uh, higher balls where you might need to make a little adjustment. But typically at the speed of the game now, you have to prepare quickly, set your feet and hit. There's usually not much time to make an adjustment. If you can make an adjustment, it's just one or two chirpy steps, one or two quick lightning steps, adjustment steps. And uh, that's it. And many times you don't have even time for that. So it's a skill that's not as important now to take small steps. But if you have time, you can link the small steps as you get closer to the ball. But your initial steps are almost always big explosive steps big, powerful, explosive sprint step to the ball. And if you have a little time, or if you get a, if you misjudge the ball or get a funny bounce, like on clay, you can take small adjustment step. On clay, you can also use your slide. Your slide can help with the adjusting. Hope that answered your question, Tomas. 
the last uh, question, I don't know if it's not technically a question, it is a question, but it's from my buddy Ben, who's got his little five-year-old, it's kind of a statement and a question, unbelievable guys, five years old, can play from the baseline, right, with a yellow ball, and he's going to a club where the whole club is red, orange, green, and the, the junior director refuses to do even a private lesson with the kid with, with any ball other than red. So the, the, the whole system there is forcing this kid who can play from the baseline yellow, more or less. Pretty good little player. And they're forcing him into red, even in a private lesson. And they also want the kid to move down to like a little tiny stick, like 19 inches, 20 inches, which I don't agree with at all. And they want him to hit the little Nerf ball 36 feet instead of blasting it long distance, building up power and strength and all that good stuff, full swings. So my buddy Ben took his son to a class at this club, like a red ball class. He's going to send me the videos from the class, by the way, too. I have the video documentation. And anyway, it's just as I, I've been talking about. We talked about it in, I think, episode 32. I think episode 32 is the show on red, orange, green. If you haven't checked it out, check out episode 32. Great show on the myths of red, orange, green. Anyway, his little five-year-old is just kind of being encouraged to bunt the ball on a tiny little court. No full swing, no acceleration, no cracking the ball. And this is kind of the problem that I see all over the U.S. May not happen as much in Europe, but I see it all the time here in the U.S. The kids are, are decelerating, they're pushing, they're bunting, they're not developing full, long, powerful strokes. And I think probably some of the European countries do it better, like France and Belgium. But something is wrong here in the U.S. the way we're doing red, orange, green. Because what the clubs will do is they'll keep a little talented kid like that in the red, orange, green for years. Because he'll be forced to go to a small racket, softballs in red, and then the club will keep him stuck in orange for a couple more years. And many of the clubs in the U.S. are keeping the kids in green all the way to 11 or 12 years old which is absolutely bananas, bananas land, as my wife would say, bananas land. So the kids are in this softball, small court environment for years, and they're being held back, they're not able to crack an egg with their swing, and it's very, very detrimental to their development. Now over in Europe, in Belgium, in France, they, the system has to be better they're moving kids along faster. They're encouraging more racket speed and better technique and footwork. And it, it, the system works better there. Something is wrong with American red, orange, green. Please, somebody give me a clap or a thumbs up or something. Somebody give me a comment later and tell me that I'm not out of my mind because I'm seeing this everywhere. Clubs all over the country. I have players who I work with from many different regions of the country and it's the same story. These red, orange, green, obsessed clubs, these tennis directors that are brainwashed in the cult of red, orange, green, and they want to hold children back. They want to hold children back for years in the softball, little court environment because they think it's better. And they're severely mistaken. Anyway, I wanted to end on that. No, that's not too negative, is it? Come on. It's a positive program. I want to appreciate you guys tuning in. I hope 
you had some good epiphanies in terms of what you can do to help your child play better. And if you're seeing a disconnect between the practice court and the match court, it's going to be something that we talked about today. It's going to be something in the preparation. It's going to be something on the mental and emotional side, or it's going to be something in the tactical, which sometimes is part of the mental side of the game. So it's got to be in those areas. And you got to figure out as a detective what is going on. What is causing what? What is, what is contributing to your player not performing well? And then you have to develop a good game plan in concert with your coach to try to solve those issues and get your kid winning matches. After all, it's no fun to lose. The most fun part of tennis is going to a tournament and winning a lot of matches there, preferably coming home with the big trophy. So work on those areas. Listen to the show a couple times. Take notes. Maybe jot down a lot of the different areas. We covered a lot today, and I hope that helps you if you're a parent or a coach or if you're playing yourself. Think about some of the things I said Analyze yourself. Take, take note of what you do and don't do well and try to work on those things. Okay, guys, I'll see you on the next program. Excellent show. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for all the awesome questions. Remember, one thing, our summer camp's coming up in the mountains of Vermont in paradise. High performance training, Spanish training with me. Check it out. Contact me if you want more summer camp info. Or go to my website, chrislua.com. I think it's the best summer camp in the U.S. I'm a little biased, but I'm telling you, it's a very special camp. Only two players per court. Spanish ratio, two players per court, two players per coach. How many summer camps do that? All right, I'm going to end on that. I'll see you guys next week. God bless. Have a good night. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Vamos.